The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I, I know that this is probably not the most pressing question that's ever occurred to you, or at least it probably didn't occur to you until I'm about to ask it. But it's one that's been rattling around in my head most of my life, which is pretty simple. Like, what is communion for? So I am like some of you, like I was raised in the pew, pretty much born in the pew. I don't know um, when the next worship gathering was after I was born, but I'm fairly confident that my mother had me there. And we were that family that anytime the church building doors were open, like we were there. And this has always been a central part of my life. And when I was a kid, like the thing that I was taught growing up in churches was that not only is communion important, but it's actually the most important thing that we did when we gathered. Like it wasn't singing, it wasn't preaching, it was communion. And I know that this is not the thing that you woke up thinking about this morning. You were thinking about communion, but it probably sounded like brunch. That's probably what was on your mind. <laughs> but I don't think I'm the only person that asked this question because when I ask people, everyone has a ready answer, but I hardly ever believe them because it always sounds like something that they didn't choose to believe or come to believe in. It sounds like something that someone told them to say. And most of us, if we were raised like I was in the church, you probably came to believe what you believe and think what you think about communion for specific reasons that had to do with the church or the denomination that you were raised in. So my denomination that I was raised in had a very strong belief in communion. We took communion every week. Like I said before, like that's what we were told was the reason that we gathered. And so I had this experience when I was in college, my junior year of college, I was a Bible major, so I had to do an internship for a local church. And so I was going into youth ministry, and I thought, honestly, like 20-year-old me thought that I was God's greatest gift to ministry ever. Like no one was ever gonna be able to do all the things that I was gonna be able to do. And if you've been here a while, you know, that's not true. But that's what I believed when I was 20. And so I went to work for this church in San Antonio and the church where I worked and the churches that I grew up in, like we had a morning worship gathering and then everybody would go home and watch football or do whatever they do. And then we would come back at night and do it again, which is something my children do not believe <laughs> because I have told them about this. And they say things like, hold up, you went to church in the morning and then you went back at night, oh yeah. <laughs> and it was a different service, yeah, but worse. Because you come on Sunday night, that was like the JV service. Like, it was like the dude who couldn't, wasn't good enough to preach on Sunday morning, like he got his shot on Sunday night. And like the guy who really liked singing but was like off key, 
Sunday night's your jam, dude. Like, that's what happened. So I'm in college and I'm working for this church and we come back and it's Sunday night. I just started working that day, taught my first Bible class. And at the end of the service, one of the junior high kids goes, goes to the front because we had an invitation song. Some of you grew up with altar calls. It's kind of like that. And he decides that that night he's going to be baptized. And that's when it hit me. I truly am God's greatest minister ever. I've, I've been here like 10 hours. And so I was taking this, I was having to do this internship for college credit. And so at the end of the year, at the end of the summer, I had to write a report and all this. And all I knew was like, this is definitely going in like my report for whatever, this is a guaranteed A. But then after that Sunday night, I never saw that kid ever again. <laughs> and it turns out his family wasn't all that involved. His dad traveled a lot, leaving his mom with three kids. And so in the summer, she just kind of shipped them off to camps just so she would have a little bit of a lightened load for the whole time. And it wasn't until I got back to school that fall that I heard about what had actually happened. And what actually happened was this that that Sunday morning, after worship was over, this kid snuck into the kitchen of the church building and he ate the leftover bread from communion and drank the leftover juice from communion. Now what you have to understand, because not all of you grew up like this, is that in the churches that I grew up, communion and baptism were intertwined. And you couldn't take communion, you couldn't receive communion until you were baptized. And by that, once he had had communion, like he had to be baptized that night. And I didn't realize like, like the pastor had gone over to the family's house that day. It was a big thing. Everybody was really worried. But that's how central it was to our faith practice. And it seems it seems like a silly thing that most people don't think about. Because if you were raised in some sort of church tradition, you had some practice around this. Like maybe it was once a quarter. When my daughters first started school, we were living in California and they were going to an Episcopal school. And they had their own separate beliefs about the Eucharist, about communion. And so once a month, all of the kids would take communion, but you could only take it if you were an Episcopalian. If you weren't, you had to go down front and you just received a blessing because you were outside of the tribe. So my girls couldn't take communion, but because I was ordained, they let me serve communion. <laughs> so I could consecrate communion but we just couldn't take it. And for the last several years, for their high school years, my, my girls have gone to Catholic schools where when they have their mass and on feast days, like they go down and they receive a blessing because they're not Catholic. And it seems like the kind of thing that's not really all of that pressing. But for every Christian tradition, 
It's at the heart of who you are and what you do. And how you practice it and what we think about it actually does have real world impact. Like, what do you do? And what is it for? And you can see that in a culture like ours, when the rise of the nuns, why would we bother practicing? Why would we gather to do something if it was just some meaningless ritual? Just going through the motions. Like, what does it mean to do this? Why bother? Because people are right. Like, if we're just getting together to do and say and practice meaningless rituals, it really is just better to stay at home. If it doesn't mean anything, if it carries no weight, no significance. And I know it's not a burning question. You didn't wake up this morning thinking about it. But how, how you live is actually the outgrowth of what you think about it. And so as I've flipped through the years thinking about what it is that we do when we share this together, one of my guides has been this woman, Sarah Miles. And so if you've been around Ecclesia this summer, you know that we have been looking at extraordinary Christian women thinkers and leaders and writers and how they are pointing us to a deeper engagement with God and how they have seen God. And one of those people has been Sarah Miles. And I was at first introduced to Sarah Miles actually through my wife about 15 years ago when my wife Rochelle read Sarah's book, Take This Bread. And there was actually an interesting Houston connection because even though Sarah is a writer and a war correspondent living in San Francisco, the rector at her church is a family, the son of a family friend of ours that we worshiped with at the time. But Sarah is completely opposite from me because I grew up in the church and she did not. Matter of fact, she grew up atheist, not thinking much about church and Christianity very much at all until one morning she decided to join the local church for worship. And her book, Take Take This Bread, starts out this way. She says, one early cloudy morning when I was 46, I walked into a church, ate a piece of bread, took a sip of wine, a routine Sunday activity for tens of millions of Americans, except that up until that moment, I'd led a thoroughly secular life. At best indifferent to religion, more often appalled by its fundamentalist crusades. This was my first communion. It changed everything. Eating Jesus, as I did that day to my great astonishment, led me against all my expectations to a faith I'd scorned and work I'd never imagined. The mysterious sacrament turned out to be not a symbolic wafer at all, but actual food. Indeed, the bread of life in that shocking moment of communion filled with a deep desire to reach for and become part of a body. I realized that what I'd been doing with my life all along was what I was meant to do. 
feed people. Sarah says that at her first communion at St. Gregory's, the woman presiding over communion said, Jesus welcomes all people. And in that moment, she decided that she would make her way to the front and share in communion with the rest of the gathered body of believers there. And she said two things, two shocking realizations happened in that moment. The first is that she realized that this was just a regular piece of bread. Nothing special, nothing magical. And two, that the God she didn't believe in existed. And Sarah says she went back to her seat and welled up with tears. And when the gathering was over, she left as soon as she could so that no Christian could talk to her. (laughs) But she came back the next week. And then the next week, and the week after that. And when her friends asked her why she kept coming back, she said, because I was hungry. And week after week, she would join this church in worship. And finally, one of the leaders asked her, they said, you're here early every week would you like to serve? And so she did. And she served her first communion. And it wasn't too long after that, that Sarah began a food pantry in that church. Not in another room someplace, not in another building, but every Friday, 600 families come to gather food placed on shelves right in the middle of the sanctuary with the table right in the middle. In San Francisco where Sarah lives, if you're making minimum wage, you need to work 63 hours a week to be able to afford the average rent for a one bedroom apartment. And Sarah says, that one meal, that communion meal, led her to a life doing the thing that she was meant to do. Feed people. And as I think about Sarah's story, I'm reminded of this story from the life of Jesus told by the Apostle Luke in Luke 19. And most of us have heard this story if you've been around. At least we know something about this story because this story is about a guy named Zacchaeus. And if you don't know anything else, you know Zacchaeus was what? A wee little man. You you all get your star for VBS. (laughs) This is what Luke tells us in that story. He says, Jesus enters Jericho. This is about 15, 16 miles from Jerusalem and Jesus is on the way to the cross. And it seems, and seems only to be passing through. Living in Jericho is a man named Zacchaeus. He's the head tax collector and is very rich. Now, when you see head tax collector, my mom was a tax collector. She's nothing like Zacchaeus. 
There's a word that you also heard if you've been around the Bible that explains exactly what Zacchaeus was. It's the word publican. So there's another story in the gospels about a publican who comes to pray. These people were not well liked by their Jewish neighbors. He is also very short, which is not Luke just throwing shade. This matters. He wants to see Jesus as he passes through the center of town, but he can't get a glimpse because the crowd blocks his view. Now, you know what? I used to think that this passage said that he couldn't see because the crowd was in the way. But no, this is totally different. They're blocking his view. Because you know what you would do? If there was something really important going on and someone couldn't see what it was, because you're good people, you'd help them out. Like I remember being a little kid and going to parades and not being able to see. And what did my dad do? He picks you up and puts you on his shoulder. It's not that Zacchaeus can't see. Zacchaeus is being kept from seeing because these people do not like Zacchaeus. And there's something in us when, where we are not very excited when people we don't like want to see Jesus. So he runs ahead of the crowd and climbs up into a sycamore tree so he can see Jesus when he passes beneath him. Jesus comes along and looks up into the tree and there he sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry down from that tree because I need to stay at your house tonight. Now this sounds kind of weird to you because Jesus just walks up to Zacchaeus and says, um, I need to stay at your house tonight and you know good and well what you do at home when someone knocks on your door and you're not expecting them. You try to act like nobody's there. You don't want anybody to stay at your house. Like you should have texted first. You want to stay here. We don't have food for all you people. But if you were an ancient Jew, this was part of what it meant to live in community. That this is actually encoded in the laws and habits and the postures of people that if a Jew needed a place to stay, you were to welcome them into your own space. This is a way that travelers were able to stay safe. It's one of the things happening in the background of the story of the Good Samaritan is that we take care of each other. Zacchaeus scrambles down and joyfully brings Jesus back to his house. Now the crowd sees this and they're upset crowd grumbles saying, Jesus has become the house guest of this fellow who is a notorious sinner. And that's a weird thing to say. Because I'm going to ask you a question that you already know the answer to. If Jesus is traveling and he needs to stay at somebody's house. How can he not stay at a sinner's house? 
It's not like ancient Jews thought, well, these people over here are sinners and we're not sinners. I mean, that's the whole thing with the Pharisees, building a hedge around the law. They knew fully well that they were sinners. Everybody was a sinner. They're not upset that Jesus is staying with a sinner. They know they are sinners. There's no place else for Jesus to stay if he doesn't stay with sinners. Their problem is not that Zacchaeus is a sinner. It's the kind of sin. They don't like the fact that Jesus would stay with someone who sins like that. Do you ever know anybody like that? I mean, we're all very acquainted with the fact that we sin. We don't like to talk about it. Don't mention it. Some of you are uncomfortable even now with me mentioning it. But Jesus loves us. But would Jesus love people who sin like that? Who sin differently than we do? Zacchaeus' problem is not that he's a sinner. Zacchaeus' problem is the kind of sin. And they don't want Jesus taking up residence with people who sin differently than they do. And Zacchaeus says, Lord, I am giving half of my goods to the poor and whoever I have cheated, I will pay back four times what I took. This is important because Zacchaeus isn't just making this up. There was actually a formula for figuring out how much you should repay someone. If you have sinned against them, if you've cheated them, if you've stolen against them, if you want to read it, you can go to Exodus 33 and look it all up. Like he didn't pull this out of nowhere. Zacchaeus is acquainted with what he has done, though Jesus has not mentioned what he has done. And Jesus says, today liberation has come to this house since even Zacchaeus is living as a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to liberate the lost. And this is just one of those times when I flip through the scriptures and I wanna say to Luke, is that it? Like you gotta give us more than that because Zacchaeus has this turnaround and Jesus says, liberation has come to this house. But we have no clue what Jesus said to Zacchaeus to cause him to change his mind, to turn his life around. Like there's no conversation. We only know one thing, that Jesus went to his house. And this is part of what it meant to be a Jew in the ancient world is that you would bring people in and that you would feed them, you would care for them. And whatever happened between Zacchaeus climbing down from that tree to his decision to repay what he is owed, what he has taken, somewhere in that, Zacchaeus gets the message that this encounter with Jesus means giving to other people. 
This is a story about hospitality. And one of the things that we talk about a lot here is hospitality. And I want to be clear, I want to remind you that hospitality is not the same thing as hosting. Like some people who are really great hosts are terrible at hospitality. Because hospitality is about radical openness to the other. Inviting other people into the interior of your life, to treating people on equal footing, to loving people regardless of their background. And hosting, well, some folks aren't great at that. And you've been to their house. Because they will tell you where to sit and where you can wear your shoes and which room you can go into and which room you can't go into and where everything, like they are very great at hosting. They are not great at being hospitable. And whatever happens, the outcome of this interaction, after Zacchaeus has been fed, is to feed. Sarah Miles writes about it like this. She says, but this is my belief, that at the heart of Christianity, is a power that continues to speak to and transform us. As I found to my surprise and alarm, it could, even, it could speak even to me, not in the sappy Jesus and cookies tone of mild-mannered liberal Christianity or the blustering, blaming hellfire of the religious right. What I heard and continue to hear is a voice that can crack religious and political convictions open, that advocates for the least qualified, least official, least likely, that upsets the established order and makes a joke of uncertainty. It, claim, it proclaims against reason that the hungry will be fed, that those cast down will be raised up, and that all things, including my own failures, are being made new. It offers food without exception to the worthy and unworthy, the screwed up and pious, and then commands everyone to do the same. It doesn't promise to solve or erase suffering, but to transform it, pledging that by loving one another, even through pain, we will find more life. And it insists that by opening ourselves to strangers, the despised or frightening or unintelligible other, we will see more and more of the holy, since without exception, all people are one body. God's. And Ecclesia, this is what I want to remind us of. That the heart of our practice is communion. Both in a metaphorical sense and a very real sense. You know, of all the things that we do when we gather, none of those are new. Singing, teaching, praying, scripture reading. You can read all the way back through your Bible to the beginning of time. And people of faith have done all of those things. And people in other religious traditions do all of those things. The new thing is communion. 
which started with Jesus and in the grand scope of human history, 2,000 years is pretty recent. It's the new thing. It's the different thing that sets apart the Christian faith from every other tradition and every other philosophy. And what we do and how we do it and why we do it shapes who we are in the world. So a few things that I think this passage points us to about communing together. The first is communion. It's not a meal you can eat alone. Like by definition, it is not a meal you can eat alone. Like since COVID has been sort of kind of almost nearly coming back around over and off again, over and off again, like my wife and daughters have gone back to school, but I still largely most of the week work at home. And let me tell you how a meal goes when you're alone. This is my lunch every day. I walk into the kitchen. If it takes more than five minutes to put together, I skip it. And I get whatever I'm going to get, and I come back to my desk, and I eat at my desk. That's not communion. And what the scriptures continually point us to is that communion is not self-serve, fast food. I got to get the kids out and beat the traffic, make it to brunch on time so no one else matters. That I can take and go. That is functionally not communion. I don't know what it is. And I wish there was something I could tell you. But whatever it is, it's not communion. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, like, if you, if you take communion without centering the other people in your body, you are taking communion wrong. And I know we live in a very individualistic society where just about everything is about you and yours and get mine now. And you can carry that over into any sphere of your life that you want to, even communion, but it's just something different. It's not a meal that you can eat alone. And that's why it's important that when you're handed the bread that someone looks you in the eye and says, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you because this is something we do together. Second, you don't get to choose the people who you share it with. I don't get to choose you and you don't get to choose me. It's maybe the only place in our society where we get to get, get up and go to wherever we want to on Sunday morning. At work, the people at work you can't control, people in the neighborhood you can't control, but on Sunday morning, you get to choose who you want to be with, except when you get there, you don't get to choose who else showed up. Jesus welcomes everyone, and you know what you need more than you know that you need it? To be face-to-face -face with people who aren't like you. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, there in his group are those who will betray him and deny him 
and he serves them anyway because all are welcome. And as much as we might want it to be otherwise, this is just not our table. And third, God is calling all people to sharing and serving. That underlying all that we do when we gather together and break bread, we are called into a life that is fundamentally about being fed so that we can feed. And it's no wonder that those words of institution that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. That those verbs received, passed on, handed over, are all basically the same word in Greek, which means given over. It is a shared religion that what we have received, what has been passed on to us, we pass on to other people in the way that Jesus has passed it to us. That we leave here each time we gather fed and commissioned to feed. That we, like Jesus, hand over what has been passed on to us. Because like Sarah Miles, the world is hungry. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.